Thank you, team, for leading us today. Hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name's Trent, lead pastor here at MCC. And if you're new here with us, I wanna just extend a really, really, really big welcome home. Uh, we here at MCC really kind of treat this place like it is just a big family. And we'd love to feel, um, we'd love for you to feel like it is maybe a part of your family as well. And for that to happen, uh, we'd love to be able to connect with you. There's a little next step card in the chair in front of you. So if you are new, We'd love to help you get connected in that way. You can fill that out. You can do one or two things with it. You can either drop it in those boxes back there where we also place tithes and offering, or you can take it back there to the welcome table. And there's some people who would love to get a chance to know you, to meet you, and I'll be back there as well. So speaking of people who are new to MCC, I'm going to invite anybody who is new to MCC to come up to the front. You know, you've been new over the course of this summer. You guys just make your way forward. We're going to introduce you, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, we are not that church. Uh, you're, you've been to that church. You never went back, did you? Um, well, that is not who we are, but I know there are some of you here. I've met you. I've talked to you. We've had some great conversations. People who are new to MCC kind of over the course of the summer, people who are new and have never been to this amazing event we do here at MCC called connecting point. Connecting point is what we do so that this place is not just something you go to, but it's actually something you're a part of. And so I want to invite you to come to connect point. It's next Sunday, right after the 11 o'clock service, text breadsticks to that number on the screen. You're like, why breadsticks? Because we're going to have breadsticks. We cater in Olive Garden, chicken parm somebody. It's going to be delicious. And uh, you had to eat lunch anyway. You might as well eat lunch here with us. And again, this is just for people who are new. So you regulars, Go get lunch somewhere else. You can go to all, you can get your, it's across the street. You can go there. You know, when you're there, you're family. That's going to be awesome. So if you're new, text that to that. We'd love to have a chance to eat with you guys and connect in that way. You got your Bibles? All right. Hopefully you do. If you don't, grab one or go to the lost and found. There's some over there. Um, you can take it with you too. Some of them have been there for a long time. We're going to go through an entire chapter of the Bible today somehow. Uh, by God's grace, I did it the first service, even with a cool Amber Alert interruption in the middle. Um, Y'all got that too, I guess. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to navigate through this whole entire thing to continue to give a little bit of summary of where we're at. The pastor to the church in Hebrews has been writing them this letter, trying to encourage them to hold on, to don't let go of the faith that they have in Jesus. And he's also trying to encourage them to not drift back into religion and to lean into the relationship that they have with Jesus, that who they have in Jesus as a savior is better and truer than the system that they had in religion. And Last week, Pastor Eric did a great job of kind of leaning into this high priest that is Jesus. And today, we're going to continue to kind of wrap up his discourse on Jesus as this true and great high priest. And we're going to talk a little bit about the covenant that he brings to us as well. So if you've got a Bible, hopefully you're at Romans 8 by now. Let's read it. We're going to read through the whole thing. It's only 13 verses. And then I'll pray and we'll walk through it. This is the Word of God. Now... The point in what we're saying is this, like, and everybody just says, amen. Thank you for getting, we went through all these chapters and I was like, is there ever going to be a point? Like, what is, like, if you just read Romans 7, 8, 9, or 6, 7, 8, you're like, Hebrews, sorry, who's, what did I say? Romans. Romans. You should read Romans too, uh, by the way. Like, it's good. Um, forgive me, I'm coming off a of vacation. I was in Canada, so, you know, anyway. When you read Hebrews 6, 7, 8, you're like, what are we? And, and then sometimes you're like, we're still talking about high priests and covenants. And the 
pastor knows that his people were going to be the way we as people are. And at the very beginning of chapter 8, he goes, now the point and what we are saying is this. So that's our cue to go, pay attention, lean in, figure some stuff out. The point is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy of, They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent as a tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that I've shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant. He meditates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Verse seven. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Verse 8 through 13 is primarily what we lean into. So draw in here. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them on the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. But this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. In those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What was becoming obsolete is growing old, and ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And even yet again this morning, we come to a passage that at first glance reading, it is not easy and simple to know and understand all the things that are going on here. But Jesus, we pray that we can come to this place where we understand the simple truths that are here. We can understand that this passage points us to the power that is made fully on display through your gospel. Jesus, I know that there's a lot of different people you brought in from a lot of different places who are sitting in this room. Help everybody to know that they are not here by accident, that we gather here today not to hear from a person, not to hear a good talk from a guy, but we gather here to hear and learn and discover what your word means. We long to hear what your word means because it is the only thing, it is the only book, it is the only scripture, it is the only words ever written that are living and active words from our creator, God. There's nothing we need more than to hear from you. And praise God that when we hear from you, your words do not return void. And so move me out of the way. 
I humbly submit to where you, the power of your Holy Spirit, want to take everything that happens today for your glory. Amen. Before I dive in today, I want to talk to you about promises. Promises are a big part of our lives. Promises is one of those things that in a lot of ways affects who we are and who we become. I had no idea how good my kids would be at remembering the offhanded promises I made to them. These are children who cannot remember where they put their shoes five minutes ago, but can remember year old promises about things that I told them or their mother told them that we would do if certain things aligned. And they remember those things, even though they can't remember much of anything else, they can remember these promises that were made. And for all of us in our lives that we've experienced down here on planet earth, we have been affected by promises. We've had some promises kept, but most of us have had many promises in our lives that have been made to us and not kept. And those are the things in life that affect us in weird ways. They affect us in ways that cause us to never trust people again or to have a hard time trusting people again. Most everybody in this room, you could go on this mental exercise with me where you remember a promise that was made to you that was the biggest promise ever made to you that was also a promise that was broken. For some of you, you go back to the moment. There you are, standing in a awkward, too big or too small tuxedo or a dress that you dreamed about there's a promise that was made there on that altar as you said I do's and that memory in your mind is not a good one anymore because there were promises that were broken I go back to a garage that was usually cluttered full of stuff but was now empty because we were moving out at 112 Cypress Circle Carrollton Georgia and the promise that I was told that wasn't kept. You don't have to go hard. You don't have to think. You, even the people whose memory are fading in this room, you can very easily go back and remember the promises that were made to you that were broken. And see, when those promises are made to us and they're broken, what they do is they lead us to disappointment and you get enough disappointment in life and you turn to this thing that's called despair. It's where you almost get to this place where you're giving up hope like you don't even trust people anymore. And once you hit enough disappointment, you enter into enough despair, you enter into this bleak hole that's called depression. And if it's not because of the promises that have been broken to you, it's because you're the one who's broken the promises. You've told a mom, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not addicted anymore. I don't need, I'm, I'm good, I promise this time, this time it's gonna work. This time I'm never going back. I promise, I'm, I'm done, I'm, I'm, I'm through. We've made promises and we've broken promises. We've said the I do's and said things with our actions that said I don't. And regardless of what end of the spectrum you are, as a person who's broken because of the promises that have been broken to you or the person who's experiencing brokenness because you couldn't keep promises, we all feel pain. And it kind of begs this question, is there something that we can be given from God that would cure the promises we make and break to each other? And even dare I say, help us in the promises we make and break to ourselves. See, I believe that God 
knows our ability and our inability to keep our promises to each other and our promises to ourselves. So God does this thing where he invents something that is far greater than even promises. Even in his word, he doesn't even call it promises. He calls it covenant. And today what I wanna talk to you about is this word, covenant. What the pastor to the church in Hebrews is getting ready to do is continue to run the same play he has ran the entire book. It's by taking something that these Jewish people would have understood and helping them understand Jesus is truer and greater than this. The whole theme of the book of Hebrews is I want to show you Christ's way to a true and greater life. And what he does to those people, and hopefully I'm gonna be able to do to you as we navigate through the whole course of this book, is show you how, how Christ really is the only way, the primary way to a true and greater life. And what he's gonna do here in this passage that we just read in chapter eight is to show that in Christ, we now have a true and greater life covenant, a true and greater promise. And what's amazing and miraculous about this, and the reason you should pay attention, lean in and listen, is because now if we can become new covenant, new promise people in Christ, now we enter into a covenant that is made by God and kept by God, that even if our lives are the result of broken promise after broken promise after broken promise, or even if we are people who continue to break promise and continue to break promise and feel the shame that comes from that, if we are in the new covenant promise, we have a promise that no matter what happens, we'll be all right. Because this is a covenant, this is a promise based on grace, not on works. And we need that. And so let's walk through this passage we're gonna go pretty quick through the first stuff and we're gonna dive into a quotation that the pastor gives from the book of Jeremiah that quotes this coming new covenant. And that's gonna be where we spend the primary part of our time. In there, we're gonna learn specifically, if you're note takers out there and you wanna outline, we're gonna learn specifically four reasons why the new covenant is truer and greater. So let's dive in. Verse one and two. So it's now the point, and what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Right off the bat, he just goes magisterial. He's saying, hey guys, the big point in all of this is we have in Jesus a true high priest seated at the right hand of the throne and the majesty of heaven. This is really, really, really good news. He's simply saying Jesus is our true and greater high priest. Eric did everything that he could and did a great job doing it last week to explain to you what all that meant. To again, summarize this. Jesus is the one who does not just offer a sacrifice so that we can be forgiven. He is one who becomes the sacrifice so we can be forgiven. Every other major world religion says, here's the mountain, God's on top of it. Do this, do this, do this. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And you will find your way climbing the mountain to go and to be with that God. And all of the earthly religions, even the Jewish faith included, took on a priest essentially as this guide to help the people get up the mountain to go to God. What he is doing here now is saying that system of a priest who could help you climb the mountain so you could feel good about who you were with God, that is now finally finding its full completion. It always pointed to it anyway, but it's found its completion in Jesus. 
The one who said, you could never make it up the mountain on your own. I am coming down the mountain. I'm entering into the womb of a teenage girl in Bethlehem. I'm gonna be born. I'm gonna live. I'm gonna show you what life here should look like. And then I'm gonna give my life and die for your sins on a bloodstained cross, rise again, and then send my spirit to empower you to live a holy life. He gives us this thing called the gospel. And the beauty about this is that as Jesus does all of that, and this is what I love about this passage because he's pointing to where Jesus is now. It says he is seated with God. Do you guys remember when the Braves won the World Series? Sorry to take a hard right turn. Do you remember the Braves won the Series? 2021, <laughs> Braves won the World Series. It was good. It was awesome. I loved it. It was, it's, it's etched into my brain. Jessica has a video of me and Titus both, I think in our underwear. We're late, really late. And you know, we're just screaming and shouting. It's, it's awesome. After that happened, sorry to get images, uh, <laughs> sorry. They had a World Series what after that? Some of you might have even been there. Anybody at the parade? The reception that the Braves got when they came back into Truist Park and they mentioned player by name as they come in and they just have their spoils of war. They've got the big World Series trophy. Everybody's losing their absolute minds. It's just this big, giant reception as they enter back into their home field, having won the championship, having won the battle of all battles that is baseball at least. And I saw all that, and it's just it's huge fireworks, crowds chanting, woo, standing ovation for long periods of time. But friends, what I want you to think about just for a second is to allow your imagination to run on the reception that Jesus gets when he ascends back into heaven. As he ascends back into heaven and does this whole thing here where he now gets seated back at the right hand of God. I mean, imagine like, close your eyes and think like Chronicles of Narnia stuff, like this is Jesus. He's there in Galilee with the guys and he gives them the great commission. They're like, okay, well, you go into all the world, preach to people, you tell us, go to, you know, go to Jerusalem, wait, you're gonna send the Holy Spirit. We're not really sure what that is. And then he just starts levitating out of the zone and they're like, what? Like they stand there looking so much and squinting so much that God had to send angels down to go, hey, he's not coming back, all right? I need you to listen to what he said he was gonna do and go get this. Cause they would have stood there like this the whole, they were, they're just frozen. And at some point, Jesus crosses from humanity's realm into divinity's realm and all sorts of party celebration breaks loose. Imagine the fireworks of heaven as Jesus enters in, having won the victory. There is no World Series parade. There's no concert, encore, standing ovation that could even come close to comparing. They give us little shadows of what it would have looked like. But this Jesus, victorious with the keys to death in Hades, enters into the heavenly realm in all of heaven's multitude of angels burst out an exclamation. And I believe far above every angel's exclamation, he hears the thunderous roar of his father. That's my boy. Have a seat. I, I just, I just look like I was just struck by that flying home, reading that passage. And I just think sometimes we fail to realize that we have a cosmic God who exists and operates in a different realm than the down here messed up stuff, but also chooses to come down here in the messed up stuff. And I want you to know that, you know, the same way that uh, the Braves, you know, I think it was at some point in the, the celebration, you know, you got coach Brian Snicker of the Braves, humble, unassuming coach, he takes the big World Series trophy with all the little flags and spikes and things on it and holds it up and everybody just loses their mind. 
I want you to know that, that heaven has a trophy as well. And that trophy is called the Lamb's Book of Life. And that trophy is not written and carved into it with names of teams that won this year and won this year and won this year. That trophy is carved with the names of those who are in Christ. See, every person in this room, if you are in Christ, what you are, what your life becomes is a trophy of his grace. You are the trophies that line the walls of heaven. You are what the victory bought. So it kind of ruffles my feathers a little bit sometimes when people are like, we, I know how, I read the end of the story, we won. Bro, you didn't do anything. You did not, there is nothing that you won. You're the trophy. You didn't win. You got one. And what's beautiful about this is after the win happens, it says Jesus is doing what? He's seated. So this, this crucified Middle Eastern man who was killed on a cross goes from my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Crying out in a loud voice, it is finished. And goes right from that it is finished into the ground, up from the grave, into heaven, and then sits down and it really is finished. He's seated. And this is wild and check the parallels between the priesthood of Jesus and the priesthood of the earthly priest. If you went into the Holy of Holies, do you know what you would not have found? A lazy boy, any sort. You wouldn't even found a bench. You wouldn't have found a footstool. In the Holy of Holies, there was what to be done? Work. And so when it says Jesus is this high priest who has entered into this holy place, which if you're not finding that in the verse, beside God is the Holy of Holies. He's entered into that place and he takes a seat. The work is done, the work is finished. This new covenant does not need any more sacrifices. The hamster can finally get off of the wheel because the work is done. So it says he seated at the right hand, the throne of majesty in heaven. He's a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And he begins to expound a little bit more, kind of comparing and contrasting earthly high priest to Jesus, the now heavenly high priest. He says, for every high priest, talking about earthly ones here, is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus is necessary for this priest, now he's talking about Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, what was the something that Jesus had to offer? It wasn't something, it was a someone, it was himself. It says now, if he were on earth still, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. You gotta offer the gift according to the law because the law is what you break and you gotta offer the thing to cover up the law that you broke. Verses five and six. They, he's talking about the earthly priest here, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. I'm saying everything that the priest does at the temple is all a copy and a shadow of what is happening in the divine heavenly realm. He explains that a little bit more. So he says, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's the tabernacle, that's the story where the Israelites, are, are, they cross over the, the river and they enter into the wilderness and God sends Moses up the mountain to get the instructions for how he's supposed to build this tabernacle, this tent where they are supposed to meet with God, the place where God's holy presence is gonna reside. When he does that, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern. That means that there's something else that this is getting its copy from, the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So what... God does to Moses, he says, hey, I'm gonna give you what 
my holy temple, my holy place looks like. There is one of these here and I want one of them to be there with you guys. So don't mess this up. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant he meditates is better. As the old covenant that he meditates, as the covenant that he meditates is better since he has enacted on better promises. Now we're starting to get into where I wanna take you. This idea of, okay, there's this old covenant and there's some promises that were made in it, but Jesus is coming in now and he's bringing us a new covenant. Before we start talking about and unpacking covenants, I want you to understand covenant as far as scripture is concerned. Can you think of any other covenants that were made with people in scripture? But obviously we're talking about the Moses, Mosaic covenant here. Can you think of any other covenants that God made with his people? Abraham covenant, yeah. Another one is Noah. He made the uh, Noahic, I don't know how he said it. Noah's covenant. He made Noah's covenant, Abraham's covenant, the Mosaic covenant where he made with Moses and really, not really just one person as much as the whole nation of Israel. He made a covenant with David. And then obviously we have the New Testament, the, the, the new covenant that is displayed in the New Testament. Now, really two types of covenants. Sorry to nerd out on you, but track with me so you can understand this because God God is not just about you believing in his promises. Yes, he has promises. Yes, he wants to believe, but God's promises are something bigger. God offers us covenant. Covenant is a sacred agreement between two parties. And see, God's covenant usually are just one or two types of, types of covenants. They're monergistic covenants, which means it's a one-sided covenant. This, for example, is the covenant that God makes with Noah. There's nothing that Noah had to do in order for God to keep his covenant. God said, all right, I'm not gonna wipe everybody out again. Here's my rainbow as a promise and a sign to seal the covenant. It might've been a good idea for God to make it a two-sided covenant. He could have said something like, hey, Noah, don't get really drunk and pass out naked in your tent and I'll not flood the world. If he did that, he would have had to flood the world again because that's exactly what Noah did like right after all that happened, which we don't tell that story in children's ministry, by the way. Um, We leave that one out. But the Mosaic covenant is a synergistic covenant. What that means is the two parties have to work in synergy. They work together. Here's God's end of the deal. Here are the people's end of the deal. And to summarize, the simple covenant from, that Moses got was, if you obey my commands, I will bless you. If you put me as your true God, I will make your life, I will have favor upon you. You will live a blessed experience. But the other side of that coin, and this is the the other side of the covenant, was if you don't, if you worship false gods, if you do not adhere to the standards that I'm giving you laid out on display by this law, the 10 commandments you're gonna get and all the other things that accompany it, if you don't do that, I'm going to curse you. Now, we all kind of can get in this place because we like a little happy, happy, nice, you know, God we can keep in our pocket. We're like, well, God, that sounds mean. Why would you curse somebody if they don't do what's right? God, I thought you were gracious. Let me help you understand what it means because hopefully you're people who don't just read the New Testament, you read the whole Bible, you read the Old Testament too. You're gonna come across a God who at least you see in the Old Testament is going to curse people or going to say, I'm going to curse you. When you hear that, don't think of God as this like wicked witch, like stirring a cauldron and going like, I'm gonna mix up a really bad brew of curses then I'm gonna shoot them out on these people because they're doing bad things. That's not what God's curses are. When God, when God says, if you keep my commandments, I'm gonna bless you. If you don't, I will curse you. What you have to understand is in the Bible, there's this chapter called Genesis three, where sin happens. 
And when sin happens, the entire world exists now under what? Sin's curse. So when God says, I'm going to bless you, it's God's way of saying, because of my active and proactive presence with you, you will less and less experience the curse of this sinful and scarred, broken world. But if you worship false gods, if you treat me like you don't need me, what will happen is I will back away from you. I'm not gonna actively send evil things to you. You will just get what was coming to you anyway because you're in a sin-scarred, fallen, cursed-ridden world because of sin. And this is what they lived under. Now, he's explaining them that something better is coming. And where he goes to bring them to this is he quotes Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, back in the Old Testament, is a passage where God speaks through his prophet Jeremiah to give this people, the nation of Israel, is wait, again, Hebrews, all right, Jesus is here in the middle. Make sure everybody's on the same page before we go submarine style, way deep. Jesus is here in the middle. You have the Old Testament. Jeremiah is here with the Jews, nation of Israel. They've been really doing stupid things, okay? God told them to stop doing stupid things. They didn't listen. They get thrown into Babylonian captivity and God sends a prophet named Jeremiah while they're in the middle, the absolute middle of completely breaking the covenant that they should have been keeping with God. They're not keeping it. They're experiencing the curse that is the removal of God's presence because they're brought and put in captivity. People are, it's ugly, it's really bad, all right? Now, fast forward past Jesus' birth, death, resurrection, and into Hebrews, now this author is quoting what he said back here and telling them that all along, God's intention has to been to bring this new covenant into your reality. And now guys, he's saying, Jeremiah was talking about this a long time ago and wake up guys, now we're actually getting to experience it. It's not just something that's coming, it has came. It's here, it's our life if we're in Christ. So he explains it this way. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault in them when he says, now he's quoting, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. This is him promising to a people who are in the bottom, they're in in-school suspension in Babylon. They're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. There is so much trouble. And he's saying, there's gonna come a day, guys, when I will establish a new covenant, a new promise with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And it's not gonna be like the old covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they didn't continue in my covenant. So it wasn't a bad covenant because God messed up. It was a bad covenant because they didn't do their end of the bargain. And I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, he's getting ready to explain, expound upon what is in this new covenant. And it's found back in the Old Testament. It says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, which <clears throat> pause there for a second before we get into this. Some of you can read that and go, well, I thought the Israel, I thought the house of Israel was all the Jewish people. And, and you're in this room going like, well, I'm not Jewish, all right? And you're right, you're not. So this can be concerning because you can go, well, is this for them or is this for me? I'm in Christ, I, I, even though I'm a Gentile, right? Yes, remember, went through the entire book of Hebrews. Hebrews explained this 
two, I mean, the, we went through the entire book of Ephesians, explained this at great lengths. It says, in Christ, there's now neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. Paul in the book of Romans, he explains that, that we are now a branch, the Gentiles are now a branch that has been grafted in to the house and the family that is the Israelite nation, that is the tribe of Judah, that is this family. So when it says the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel, friend, that means you, you are in the house if you are in Christ. So he says these words, after those days, declare the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. If you're taking notes, the first reason that this new covenant is a true and greater covenant is because it works from the inside to the outside. Remember, in the old covenant, they got the laws. They read the laws and they tried their best to live up to the laws. Fail over and over and over again. The law was not able to make them righteous. God actually never intended for them to be able to have this old covenant law, these 10 commandments, and then by living them out, they would live righteous lives. It'd be like me going to your house and picking up your toaster and getting mad at it. I'd be like, you stupid toaster, why don't you make bread? You'd be like, Pastor Trent, what kind of drugs are you on? Like, <laughs> that thing toasts bread, it doesn't make bread. And that's the way the old covenant was. The old covenant was to show you where you have fallen from righteousness. It was never meant or intended to create righteousness. The old covenant was meant to point towards one where no longer would the law be out there, something I'm trying to live up to, but the law would be in here, something that is flowing through my life. So when you think about this new covenant and why it's greater, because it's coming from the inside of our lives out. It's actually something that is in our heart. I don't know if you've had this experience with sin and mistakes. Like we all know, for the most part, even if you're not really a church person, spiritual person, you know there's kind of right and there's kind of wrong. Our world is trying to do its best job to kind of blur those lines between right and wrong. But at the end of the day, most of us kind of have something in here that kind of knows that. And my question to you is, if you've been trying to follow Jesus, has just your actions changed or have your actual desires changed? Like it's great and all that if you're following Christ and what you do or don't do starts to line up more than what God's word says, but it's a whole different thing to win deep within your heart, your desires for the things of God or your anti-desires for the things that are not of God, those things actually begin to change as well. And According to God's word, a true indication that we actually have the Holy Spirit living and active in our life is that not just what we do changes, but what we desire to do changes. Things that used to attract us now looks repulsive. You ever had food poisoning? You could have eaten Ruth Chris Steakhouse and then gotten food poisoning. And now that big, juicy, prime rib steak is repulsive, at least for a week or two. You know, like... <laughs> You know, And so what, I, what, I'm, what I'm after here is the reason this covenant is, is true and the reason that it is something that is truer and greater is that it works from the inside out. Now, you're still probably going like I was when I read this. It's like, well, okay, well, it's God's laws are written on my heart. 
So is that what's guiding me? Well, what is it that's helping me be guided? Like, is it just my conscience? What is it? Because you felt like I felt where like, I still desire to do the right thing, but I don't do the right thing. And the things I don't wanna do are still the same things I do. Like we've read through Romans six, seven, and eight, and we've experienced that, right? Well, do me a favor and let's navigate to the book of Ezekiel, all right? I know that's a little bit obscure. It's a minor prophet. Let's go down to Ezekiel. You're gonna have to use your table of contents. There's no shame in that. Um, Go to the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, there is this passage that you probably have heard before when I start to say it. You may not have known it came out of Ezekiel. There's really awesome passages in Ezekiel that actually parallels and runs alongside of this passage that the pastor to Hebrews is quoting that comes out of Jeremiah. And it's explaining to them what is gonna be the reality in the new covenant. So if you're in the new covenant, this reality that he's talking about in Jeremiah and this reality that he's prophesying about in Ezekiel is your truth, is your reality. Listen to what he says. And this helps us understand how in the world does the law written on my heart actually change what I do with my hands? Ezekiel 36, verse 25 through 27. This is God speaking to the people through the prophet. Still hear pages turning, which I love that sound. It's probably my favorite sound in the whole entire world, or at least my whole entire church. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. This is God speaking. This is God telling us what will come in the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. You ever realize after really sinful moments in our lives where a lot of people run right to the shower. God knows what we really need. Because then from your idols, I will cleanse you. A deep clean, a real clean. Verse 26 is I will give you a new heart. So to compare that to what he's saying in Jeremiah, What's not happening is your still old, messed up, jacked up heart now has graffiti on it with the, 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 that reads the law of God. Say, no, 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 a whole new heart. And on this heart is written his law, his way. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you as I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you heart of flesh. So what he's saying here is I am going to perform. If you are in Christ, if you are a new covenant believer, you have experienced a heart transplant. And I just wanna pause right there because some of us in this room, we are just under religion and you are not in a relationship with Jesus. Friend, do you really feel like your heart has changed? Not just your actions, not just your mindset, but has your heart changed? The deepest, most real, most true part of you, has your heart changed? Do you you have a moment in time where you know like there was a noticeable difference? Or who I was on the ends, like you don't get a heart transplant and and go, "Mm." think something happened. You know, you know. Here's why you know, verse 27. I will put my spirit within you. That's a capital S right there. 
That's the third person of the Trinity. He says, I will put my spirit within you. What that means, friend, is the answer is not within yourself. Our only hope of, of living out in this new covenant life is having an alien spirit, not like, but like something outside of us, spirit put into our lives, something that wasn't in there already being put into our lives so that we can live this out. So that the law of God, which the Holy Spirit wrote himself, begins to flow through our lives as we put our eyes on the word of God, as we learn the things of God. This Holy Spirit that is inside of our heart begins to beckon us and call us and urge us to align our lives that are now enmeshed from the inside out with God. So why is it a better covenant? It's because it works from the inside out. It cleanses us from the deepest, most abyssful things inside of us and then allows that to become outside of our life. See, Dead religion and the true gospel work in opposite directions. And I want you to make sure that you've actually gotten the gospel and not religion. Here's how you can know. In dead religion, it all begins with knowing the right things. I gotta know the right things. If I know the right things, then I'll start doing the right things. If I know the right things about God, if I know the right things about what I need to do, if I know the right things about what percentage should I tie, if I know the right things about how, can I, how far can I go with this girl before that's too far, what can I do in high school, what's the line as far as my sexual purity, how can I not cross that? If I know the right things, then I can do the right things and then I'll be the right person that God accepts and he loves. Friends, that is dead religion and will lead you to the pits of hell. But the gospel is the exact opposite. The gospel says being being in Christ, being made new, being adopted as a child of God, being what you are in Christ. What he does first for you is make you something different, a new being, something that is not what you were before, something that is saved. Being, when you understand being, being leads to knowing, oh, I am a son, I am a daughter, I am the prodigal who has returned who now has a ring and a robe on my finger. I am forgiven, set free, redeemed. That is what I be. And now that leads to me knowing, knowing that those things that I used to do are not who I am anymore. Knowing that I don't have to placate my life to get your approval because I have the approval from God. I am one who has that. So my being leads to me knowing and then that transforms and dictates what I am doing. The gospel works in the exact opposite direction as religion. The next thing that we see in this passage here that explains to us why this new covenant is a true and greater covenant is this part here where he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is good news. It proves to us that we have a greater covenant because this covenant offers us a true relationship where God says to us, I am your God and you are my people. Not because of your bloodline, not because you did some good things to earn into this, not because you're on the roll, not because if we pull the database and you, it technically says you're a member of MCC. No, he says, I am your God and you are my people. You are in this. You are born again. See, this is what's different than the old covenant. The old covenant, all it could do was introduce to you a God who was fault finder. And many of you, and me, myself included, on my bad days, weak flesh days, I have a propensity to look at God like that's all he is. He's old covenant God. He just finds the fault with me. 
I do something wrong and I know God's up there going, bro, that's the third time this week. Are you serious? But God, he's just a fault finder. Now listen, God's really smart. He didn't need me to tell you that. And so he does know the faults. He does know what you've done wrong. But if you just leave God as a fault finder in your theology of him, you are an old covenant person. You're not a new covenant person. New covenant person looks at God, yes, as fault finder, and then looks at Jesus as problem solver. And you've got to have both. You've got to have the law and the, the, the statutes of God that show, yes, you, you are at fault. You are on the hook. But in Jesus, you have a problem solver. You couldn't have solved it on your own. And this problem solving God is one that you can come to know. And here's what's wild. And 2023 needs this from Christians. If we have a God who is problem solver, not fault finder, what would it look like if his church became the same thing? You know what Christians can sometimes treat like it's an Olympic sport that they're trying to win gold at? Fault finding. What if we embraced the identity of our God within us? Instead of just being fault finders, we actually became problem solvers. What if, here's a crazy idea. What if we waited until we knew a good solution to even point out the thing that was wrong. Imagine what would happen at your workplace if people started doing that. If you're in management, imagine how awesome it would be to have employees who would bring you solutions <laughs> instead of just pointing out problems. If you're a parent, <laughs> imagine what it would be like <laughs> to have children who brought you solutions to the problems they had discovered instead of just going, I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm bored. All right, this is our God. And he says, I can know you and you can know me because I can be your God and you will be my people, not just in name, but in blood. The next thing we see is shown to us in the last two verses here. And they shall not teach each other, one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I'll be merciful towards their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. Now, what he's not saying here is this blanket universalism. Uh, you guys ever heard that word? Universalism is this notion, and it, it's, it's becoming more and more popular in our day and age. It's been around for a really long time. But universalism essentially says, God is love. And because he's a loving God, at the end of the day, nobody's gonna go to hell. Everybody's in. And they can read a verse like this and say, everybody's gonna know him, the least to the greatest. Everybody's in, love wins. God loves people way too much to let anybody go to bad places. They're even scared to say the hell word. Or universalism would say, there's universal, there's many paths that all lead to this one God. This is not what this verse is saying. This verse is explaining to them that if you are in the new covenant, this thing that is God, this person that is Jesus, this, this Holy Spirit that you now have will not be something you have to go, hmm, I wonder what that's like. So I wish somebody would teach me. I wish somebody would show me. What this passage is saying is that for those of us who are in the new covenant, again, it goes back to what we said first part, 
The law is written in our heart. Now the Holy Spirit of God is inside of us. He gives us the new spirit. He gives us a new heart. And how deranged and terrible would it be as God the Father to give you this new heart and not have it have a gravitational magnetic pull towards him to just leave you out as a broken, lost orphan. Now the other side of that coin is many of us in this room, we believe that that's in there, but we go like, God, is there any way we can get closer faster? It's wild out here. And I feel like I'm alone, I'm scared, I'm nervous, I'm depressed. I don't know how I'm gonna pay these bills, I don't know how to raise these kids. Can, can I just get a little closer to hear what you're saying? And God's like, yes. But you need to understand, same way I whispered whisper to Elijah in the cave and I showed up in a still small voice, that's how I still speak to people. And so you need to turn the rest of the world down. You need to know that I'm not gonna show up in a whirlwind, an earthquake, or a fire. I'm gonna come in a gentle whisper so that you lean in and draw near. Because he's a God that longs for the least of them to the greatest of them to know. So this is a, a great new covenant because it's one where all can know the one who's behind the covenant. Last thing, and this, the fourth part of this is the most important part. And it's the part that all the other three hinge upon. When he says, I will be merciful. Look at all these I will statements. God's making a new covenant. He's telling you all the things he's gonna do. There's not a whole lot in here that you, have you heard your imperatives yet? Me neither. I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Why is it a true and greater covenant? Because it actually offers full forgiveness. And, but wait, there's more. It offers full forgiveness and full forgetfulness. Read that again. I'll be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I will, this is God speaking. I will remember your sins no more. Where do you get off doing everything you can to remember things that God has chosen to forget? Whether things about you or things about somebody else. Your fastest way to freedom from what's happening to you or happened to you or even the things that will happen to you is to understand that those sins are something that God has chosen to forget. So what that means is, friend, you don't have to remember them because God has forgotten them. That you can move forward knowing that I have full forgiveness. And because of that forgiveness, I can have and receive in this new heart that allows me to live a new life. I can receive this thing and this reality that is I have a father who knows me and I know him. I now have this truth and reality that is expressed in my life where God is beside me. God is within me. God is guiding every step of my way because first and foremost, I have been forgiven. I don't have to go to offer a sacrifice anymore. Now, nobody in this room, unless you're coming from a Catholic or some sort of background or you're coming out of Judaism, you never in your life have had a priest. Most of you in this room are Protestants. You never had a priest in your life. You've had some pastors, but you've never had priests. So what happens in our lives, because we never have a priest, we're not growing up Jewish, is we are our own priest. And we dictate and, and meditate upon how close or how far we are to God based on how we feel. Many of us in the room, we think, well, I did something wrong. And so your sacrifice is, well, I'm gonna go to church for three weeks in a row. Well, and again, I mean, you can just go listen to some country songs. Like 
I did some things wrong. I'm going to put an extra 20 in the plate at church. Nothing will make God more proud than me paying him off. It doesn't work like that. Here's why. God pulls out the 20 and goes, what is this for? This, is, I, this came from a new covenant person. I don't remember what they did. Because I remember their sins no more. And friends, what that does is that gives us freedom. See, the law could only ever inform. The law could only ever inform and based off the information that you fall and you fall and you fall and the more the law informs, the more the law leads to shame. But what grace does is grace transforms. And when grace begins to transform, what that leads to is joy. There you go, I, I'm forgiven, I'm set free. I have this immense joy in my life. Now I'm gonna fail, I'm gonna mess up, I'm gonna hurt people's feelings, I'm gonna have people hurt mine. Life isn't gonna go the way I want it to, but I have an immense joy. And again, to bring this all back full circle, what we now live in is a covenant given from God so that despite whatever promises you break to people or whatever promises a boss, a friend, a coworker, a spouse, a family member, mother, father, whatever promise has been broken to you and not kept, you now have no part in disappointment that leads to despair that leaves you depressed. That's why the grace of God, it says the grace of God leads us to joy. It leads us to that joy. And the last passage here says, in speaking of the new covenant, this new thing that we are in, if we are in Christ, it says he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What's wild about this passage? I didn't understand. They didn't get this until I nerded out on it this week and understood some of the history. So this passage was written around AD 65. So Jesus is ascended back in heaven around AD 65, probably when the book of Hebrews is written. He says at AD 65, talking about the new covenant and even leaning into the old covenant, he says he makes the first one obsolete. What was the old covenant really contingent upon? An animal being sacrificed, holy of holies, which happened where? In the temple. So in, the, in order for the old covenant, the punishment for the sins to be pacified, there had to be a yearly sacrifice from your family. You bring your lamb, sacrifice happens, blood everywhere. That had to happen. And in AD 70, while for many Jewish people, Really, all the people who are reigning as, as Jews who are not believing in Jesus yet, that is how they still operate. They still have on their calendar during Passover. At AD 65, probably, when this is written, next year, go to Passover, bring the lamb. We've got to make sure it's you know, young, nobody mess it up, don't let it get spots on it or anything. We've got to take that. You know, next year, we've got to go. That's AD 65. Saying the first one is obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Do you know what happened in AD 70? The entire temple is destroyed. The Holy of Holies desecrated. The abomination of desolation happens there. And do you know how many sacrifices have been made at the temple since? Zero. He knew what was coming. He called a shot. And, and what I love about this is somewhere in this time, like they have the book of Hebrews 
And I think the temple gets blown up and no, nobody's able to even go in and offer sacrifice anymore. And, and, and probably at some point, somebody's reading this in their living room in a little small group gathering going, what? He, he called it. Like, yeah, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He knows what's gonna happen. So it can protect and prepare you for what is coming in your life. And so I wanna show you this thing I found in my office that has now become obsolete. But at one point in time was the thing. Y'all know what this is? That's a Motorola Razor. And again, R-A-Z-R. Don't put that O in there. If you know, you know. All right, you remember these? You could talk on one of these. You get mad at somebody, you could just hit them with that hang up, bro. You just, pop, man. We used to have so much better hang ups, you know, back in the day. Now you just, it's just not as tough. But in the day, this was the thing, guys. Everybody wanted, 2006-ish was when this came out. I remember being a senior in high school in 2006. Sorry to make some of y'all feel old and sorry to make some of y'all feel really young. In 2006, this came out. I was like, wow, this is awesome. I want one of these so bad. And I wanted the silver one too. I thought that was the most cool looking phone and everything else. Like this was it. But guys, now I have this guy. And I'm like, bro, why would I ever want this? Okay, this thing has three cameras with like 20 megapixels a piece on it, okay? Look, you can't see this, but if you could, right here where the camera is, it just says megapixel. <laughs> it's, it, there's not, it's not even plural, there's only one. And so, the reason I'm showing you this and ending today here is to help us understand that, that if you continue to operate on religion as opposed to relationship, a system of making yourself feel good about who you are with God as opposed to leaning into who he is as a savior, you are continuing to live a life that is an old covenant, obsolete, wasting your time believer. And your calls to the father under this system will not make it through. Your calls have to come through the savior, the one who did it for you the one who went up the mountain that you could never climb and now comes back down and says, let's go together. And as we receive communion, it's really what it's all about. Him saying, I want to offer you this with God life so much so that I'm literally becoming a part of you. You've got my uh, spirit inside of you. My laws are written on your heart and now commune with me on a weekly basis to be reminded that it's only by my blood and my power working in and through you. So here's this weekly reminder that it is this sustenance that you should depend on. There is nothing else from the world that can give you what I have already given you and my death, burial, resurrection, and the power of the gospel made evident in your life. And so as you commune with him today, Polari, that you are reminded that what he's really after is a heart change, not what you do with your hands necessarily changing. And you beg him to change your heart. You beg him to continue to reveal to you what does it mean to be a new covenant Christian? And you pray that through your life, he would be magnified so that the world looking around would be able to see a group of people who show them what it means to be in this new covenant, not based on what they could do, but what God has done. If you're here today and you hear all this talk about a new covenant, an old covenant, and this 
new covenant where it's not based on what you do, but it's based on what God's done is not something that you are under. And you're still trying to work hard and do your best and try your end at saving yourself. And you're finally today tired of that. And you want to surrender your life to Jesus and let him carry you up the mountain. Let him take you where you can never take yourself. I invite you to put your faith and your trust in him, to pray during the spirit of communion and invite him into your life, invite him to receive you, invite him to change you, to transform you, invite him to even just say these simple words. You don't have to complicate it. Jesus, give me a new heart. And I don't think it's too bold for you to even say, Jesus, let me feel that new heart in me. Talk to your father, talk to your savior. Let the spirit guide you. Father, it is so, so good to get to preach your gospel. And I pray that these words do not return void. I pray that you would allow your word to be living and active in the lives of my friends, my family, by the blood of Christ today. I pray for the lost and weary sinner uh, that you would just allow them to find the end of their selves and to see you there waiting, arms wide open, ready to receive them in. The Father who is not afraid of what they will bring to the equation, but has fully taken into account all of their sin, all of their mistakes, all the shame, all of the even right now guilt and addiction that you're a God who doesn't man that they be perfect before they come, who just beckons that they do. Pray that nothing, no attempt of Satan, no scheme of man, no logic would keep them from coming to you today. I pray that you would find them and bring them home.